This is Debbie Guy Geish, author of Rise of the Revenue Marketer, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help us both discover new ideas about what's actually working in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, please feel free to message me on LinkedIn. And if we're not connected there yet, just send me a connection invite. And now on with the show. Today, we welcome Debbie Gagish to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about her book, Rise of the Revenue Marketer. Debbie is the Chief Strategy Officer of the Pedowitz Group and is a nationally recognized expert, innovator, and speaker on revenue marketing with more than 30 years of sales and marketing experience, applying strategy, technology, and process to help B2B companies drive revenue growth. And interesting fact, she is also a PhD candidate and her dissertation topic is how the CMO adopts financial accountability in an e-marketing environment. Debbie, congratulations on Rise of the Revenue Marketer and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Doug. And you made me feel really old. 30 years doing this. Oh, boy. But I did start when I was 11, just to let everybody know. Okay, yeah. So you've got like one... No, I'm almost on my 30th year too. So I just, uh, as one of my listeners once said, you're a lot older than you sound. And I think that might be because, as I like to say, you're only young once, but you can be immature forever. But Debbie Gagish, you are, after over 150 interviews, the very first graduate of Auburn University. Go War Eagles. And War Eagle. Hey. But you are you are actually the second degree holder from there. When you're the host of the Marketing Book Podcast, you keep track of a lot of real trivial things. There was another author on the podcast recently who has an Auburn degree, Daniel McGinn, author of Psyched Up. He's a senior editor at the Harvard Business Review. He got his MBA at Auburn. So, you know, all those cool. Alabama, all those Alabama people, come on, you need to step forward. I think we've only That's had one exactly one grad. Right. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's right. So I learned about your book two years ago when I was reading Making Rain with Events by Scott Ingram. Yep. He was on the podcast, and I read about your book and said, holy cow, I'm really interested in that. I've got to – and I've been reaching out to you for about two years, and now our, our schedule's finally synced up, and I was able to get you on. This is a really important topic for uh, listeners to the Marketing Book Podcast. And I want to start with a excerpt from the uh, preface of the book. I wrote this book for the B2B marketing executive who's responsible for identifying, creating, and executing a revenue marketing strategy, demonstrating direct revenue results and a realistic ROI, and transforming marketing from a cost center to a revenue center. Today's B2B marketing executive is working in a world that is changing faster than the pace at which marketing can adjust. New technologies, 
such as marketing automation, have dramatically changed the role of marketing in the revenue equation. Marketing leaders need to effectively and quickly embrace and optimize these new dynamics. As I am watching this market mature, I see plenty of education for marketers at the tactical level. What I don't see is education, best practices, or even a basic playbook written just for the executive revenue marketer. A playbook that marketing leaders can use to move revenue marketing from an innovative strategy to a well-executed, multifaceted, and multi-year plan for transforming marketing. This book is such a playbook. What you won't see is a list of top five email best practices or top 10 ways to improve campaign effectiveness. This is not a tactical book. Debbie, can you tell us the story now about years ago when you were the VP of marketing for a software firm and your CEO walked into your office one morning and confronted you with the bombshell of a question and he said, so Debbie, what are you going to do about revenue? And I tell you, I, that, I, that happened to me in 2004, Doug, and I still tell that story. And when I was getting ready for this interview, you know, one of the things that I'll talk about at the end is, you know, what books have kind of shaped my career. Also, in addition to books, things that happen to you shape your career. And that particular incident was the number one thing that shaped my career and set me on the path to become a leader in the field of revenue marketing. So my history was, for most of my professional career, I had been in sales. I'd either uh, you know, carried a bag or I ran both national and international sales organizations. And I ran marketing a time or two because in the smaller companies, you, know, you could have the title of VP of sales and marketing and, and, and you, would, uh, you know, would have to handle both. Mm -hmm. Well, in this one company I joined and I was only the VP of marketing. It's the first time I was just a VP of marketing. And this is a true story. We were a small software company that we sold to very large companies that had large call centers, you know, 3,000 plus call center agents. And so in a small company like that, you know, deals made us, we were either in a feast mode or a famine mode. And our CEO, like every good CEO, was constantly thinking, you know, how can we drive more revenue? How can I take a look at all the assets that I have and, and think about those assets as a toolkit? And how can I most effectively use these tools to help our company be successful? And when I came on board, I probably had been there, I don't know, maybe three months. Mm -hmm. And his name was Rusty Gordon. And Rusty walks into my office and he looks me straight in the eye and he says, Debbie, what are you going to do about revenue? I literally laughed. And this is the back in the days when you had an office and it had a door. Mm -hmm. And uh, it had VP of marketing on the outside of my door. And I said, Rusty, it's You probably had VP. a fax machine in the office. Had, we did have a fax machine. And it said, it said VP of marketing on the door. And he says, yes, he said, but I need everybody to think about how we can help improve our revenue picture. And that one question really started my journey. The second person that I called next was actually Jim Dickey. Do you know Jim Dickey? of CSO Insights. He's no, now, but I know of CSO Insights and you, you, know, you talk about Insights. them in, in the book. Yep. And, uh, and and the reason I reached out to Jim, I'm like, Jim, you know, who, who do I talk to? Where do I go? He says, well, you know, Debbie, there's this company called Eloqua. Go take a look at Eloqua. And I took a look at Eloqua. And to this day, and I don't have a great memory. Now, this I was 2004, so Eloqua was fairly, they, they were, were fairly young at that point, weren't they? They were very young. And Eloqua came out and did a demo, and I remember that demo. It was 
one of the most uh, mind-blowing experiences I've ever had in, in, a, in, a, in a professional setting. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh my God, this technology is going to change how sales does what they do and how marketing does what they do. And so I bought Eloqua. And, and, and that's a marketing automation yes, it's software. Marketing automation, kind of like the, the grandfather of all marketing automation systems. They, mm -hmm. they, they were the first to market. And at the time, I didn't realize um, what an early uh, adopter I was. I just knew this technology made absolute positive sense. And Doug, I think because of my background in sales, that's the reason I got it so quickly. I'm like, marketing has a chance to really impact revenue here with this technology. And marketing is the one having these conversations in this digital world with all these customers. So it makes sense for us to be using this technology and for marketing to be a part of the sales process. Right. And that's really what started the whole journey. Well, you know, it's interesting also because I've heard some folks say that the marketing automation software world kind of missed the boat when they called it marketing automation software. <laughs> they could have called it sales automation software or something like that, and they might have gained faster acceptance. Oh, gosh. My CRM friends hate it when I say this, but it's true because I worked in CRM. Um, I've worked, well, worked with two different companies in the CRM industry, and uh, I thought marketing automation was the promise that CRM never delivered for mm. salespeople. Mm -hmm. And it's been so interesting that we still see, we, we still don't see the adoption of these technologies in the sales organization like we should. I still think that's an area of huge opportunity. Um, but yes, it, it certainly made a difference. And whether you call it marketing automation or customer platform or engagement tools, you know, whatever you call it, the premise is that people are interacting with us in the digital world and you need to find a way to communicate, understand them, learn about them and create an experience for them. And that's what these tools allow you to do. Right. That's the net. So Debbie, I want to ask you to comment on one thing in the beginning of the book where you say salespeople have lost critical visibility into buyer behavior. And there is a huge information and communication gap between sales activities and what the buyer is actually doing. It wasn't always that way. What's happened? Oh, gosh, I'll tell you the story. And again, I will really date myself here. But back in the day, when I ran sales organizations, here's the way it would happen. We'd get a phone call and somebody would say, we're looking at, you know, buying a solution like you have. Can you come in and present to us? And so we would, we would have our whole dog and pony show and we'd go out and we'd present live to that customer. And then, of course, so would nine other companies. And because you were, this, it was the sales team that was doing the interaction with the client very, very early in their process, the salesperson could begin to shape uh, expectations, can begin to establish a relationship. I mean, all of those things were done because the only way a potential client could get information was through the sales organization. Fast forward to a little thing called the internet. And for people who never live without the internet, this story may seem silly, but it mm -hmm. isn't. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. But if you fast forward to the internet, all of a sudden, the client, potential client did not need to ask the salespeople to come out early in their buying journey. They could, they could find everything they wanted online by looking at your competitors' websites, by looking at your websites, by talking to other people within their industry, everything was happening digitally. And so if you think about the sales process and when sales actually began to work with a client, they were now completely cut off at the knees because the client would be 60, 70% through their buyer journey, 
before sales even had any idea. The reason this is a very important concept for all of you folks who have never lived without the internet is that while we do live in the internet age, the legacy thinking that sales still owns the entire client relationship still exists. And that's a huge barrier that, that uh, marketing teams have to overcome. Amen, sister. Amen. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like legacy there's a, thinking. It, yeah, legacy it's, thinking. We, there's you a, call it shadow thinking or legacy thinking. Or a hundred-year hangover. In, yeah, love that. In the way this, this is still happening that way. And uh, just for the younger listeners out there, there was a time when uh, people like Debbie and I would, would take these vinyl discs and put them on a, a, a thing that would go around and we would it would play music. So anyway, um, now we started. Yeah. So, and then there was a thing called an eight track tape. So the picture I want to put in the mind of the listener is the picture you may have seen of like the evolution of man, where you see like a, an ape and then it turns into a, you know, something, uh, you know, more accustomed, like a man, I'm running out of forgetting my words here. And then it's the man. So I want to talk and, and help the listener understand what you call the revenue marketing journey. And so there are four really important points on this. And every company is in one of these four and no judgment. I mean, everyone's in one of these four levels of development. And I, what I want the listener to do is to listen and think about where your company is. Figure out which, which one you're in, and they're all good, but figure out which one you're in as I ask Debbie to explain uh, the revenue marketing journey in its four areas. And quickly, it's traditional marketing and then lead generation and then demand generation and then revenue marketing. So Debbie, traditional marketing, explain what you mean with traditional marketing as, versus the other three. Like uh, wh what are people doing? Okay. What are the metrics? Things okay. like that. So first, let me tell you a story about how this model came about. And it is just that. It's a model. It's a directional model. But I introduced this model in early 2011. I was part of a 14-city speaking tour with Marketo as part of their original Revenue Rockstar Roadshow. And I was the kickoff speaker in every city. So I'm in Austin, Texas, and I'm at the hotel that night. And as usual, my, my, my presentation's not done because I'm a procrastinator. And uh, I'm thinking, you know, I've been thinking about there's stages that marketers go through. And I think what I'm going to do on this 14 city roadshow is I'm going to create a model. I'm going to present the model and see if it hits with the audience because we were going to be, you know, in front of thousands of people. And so I took that stupid Chevron clip art, you know, from PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. And I said, there's four stages. There's to going from you know, old school marketing to revenue marketing. There's the traditional, the lead generation, the demand generation, and the revenue marketing. And so I, 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 I used that in my presentation in Austin, Texas. And then a funny thing happened. The speaker after me referred to that model. And then after the three of us had finished speaking, we began to talk to marketers in, in the crowd. Marketers come up to me. They would say, Debbie, we're in the lead gen stage. We're trying to get to demand generation stage. Mm -hmm. So I knew immediately this was a model, simplistic as it is, that made a huge amount of sense to people. And it's but but it, like, really, it really is powerful. Just to remind you one more time, when I was reading Scott Ingram's book, you touched on these. Mm -hmm. 
And so, it was sort of like that was my you had me at hello moment. Okay. So, so let me tell you about these phases. As you said, there's traditional lead generation, demand generation, and revenue marketing. Traditional marketing is those things that they teach still in school today. You know, it's the, it's the four Ps, product, price, placement, and promotion. And it's really the marketing communications. Um, and when you think about marketing traditionally, you think marketing as doing a set of activities. Mm -hmm. And you don't think of marketing as being integrated as part of a sales team. And they certainly have no direct revenue accountability. And I see so, this a lot. Mm -hmm. It's also, yeah. I think you described it, a lot of, well, at least the salespeople think of it as the, it's the make it pretty department. Absolutely. The make it pretty department or, you know, or the pins and mugs department is, is what oh, I like yes. to call it as well. The right. pins and mugs department, right? Yeah. And so while, while there's still a, a need for traditional elements, companies cannot survive just having traditional marketing. And so what we saw next was a move from traditional marketing to lead generation marketing. And it was technology that spurred that move, in, in particular ESPs or email systems. And email systems got into the hands of marketing people and they like, oh, we can start sending emails. And did they ever start sending emails? They just would do blast, but they were doing it mostly for communication. And what lead gen they did do, and they would pass those leads over to sales. They'd pass like all the leads, right? All the leads. Basically, <laughs> if a lead could fog a mirror, then it went over to sales. Mm -hmm. And Doug, there was more damage done in the sales and marketing relationship at the lead gen stage than anything else. I've seen companies that have leaped from traditional over to demand gen. They have no legacy pain that they have to overcome because now all of a sudden sales is getting these leads. They weren't part of anything in describing those leads. It's just fog a mirror. And so while marketing thought they were doing a great job, there was a huge disconnect with the sales organization. What did change was that marketers now had a new metric. That was how many leads were generated. Mm -hmm. But you know what? It brings to mind, uh, sorry, it brings to mind Jack Lemon from Glen Gary, Glenn Ross saying, the leads are weak. <laughs> exactly right. Hey, let, me, let me ask you, um, for this uh, lead generation in the traditional, what percentage of the business world do you think is still in traditional uh, and, gonna, and lead generation? I'm, I'm going to speak to B2B, okay? Okay. And um, there's two things that determine what stage you're in. Number one is, do you have certain pieces of technology? And number two, how you're using that technology. And actually, there's three. And number three, how you're measured. You know, I, if I take a look at B2B organizations, you know, there's not very many left doing traditional only. So it's going to be a small number, you know, maybe 20%. And these numbers have changed vastly since I wrote the book in 2013. There's going to be a lot of people in the lead generation stage. There's just going to be a ton of people in that lead generation stage. I'm going to put, I'm just doing the math here. I'm going to put 5% of revenue marketing. I'm going to put 20% of demand generation, 40, and that, so we got about 55% of lead generation. Okay. That's what, that's what I would say as, as I look at the market today. Good. And again, you know, it's, it's be careful giving somebody a weapon when they don't know how to use it. And that's pretty much what happened in that lead generation stage. Mm, okay? Interesting. Okay. So huge jump when you move from lead generation to demand generation. And the thing that began that move was the introduction of a marketing automation system that was integrated with CRM. So that's kind of like the foundation 
to begin. But the biggest changes were in what marketing was responsible for and how they were measured. Because as a demand gen marketer, they're now responsible for things like marketing qualified leads and then tracking marketing qualified to sales qualified to close. And they had the systems that would allow them to do that. Mm-hmm. So you see a tight working relationship between sales and marketing. You see marketing actually take on a responsibility for a number, whether you whether that's a quota or a percent of revenue or a percent of pipeline. And you see marketing and sales working very closely together or beginning to work very, very closely together. Mm-hmm. Okay? It's not a cold war where they hate each other and they don't understand what they do. Or at least it's better. Let's put it <laughs> okay. that way. It's thawing. It, All right. It, it, it's thawing. It's thawing. It, 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 de- it definitely has improved. All right. But again, a demand generation team is measured on things like uh, they may be measured on number of MQLs, but they're also measured on the conversion rate of that MQL to a piece of closed business. And they're measured on their percent contribution to pipeline and the percent contribution to closed one business. Okay. And so this VP of marketing or this CMO goes into the board meeting and says, you know, here's what we committed to and here's what we were able to accomplish in terms of revenue responsibility mm-hmm. in the prior quarter. Now, right. the biggest difference between being a demand generation marketer and a revenue marketer, well, there's huge differences. Um, the, the biggest difference I would say is that that same VP or CMO, when they walk into a board meeting, this time, Rather than only talking about what they did in the past, they also forecast what they will deliver in the future, Mm. just like a VP of sales. And in order to do that, they've got to have a tighter working relationship with sales, and they have to have uh, a mastery level use of all the different systems and all the different technologies that are now incumbent in marketing. Mm -hmm. I would say that the other thing that's very important in all of this is, well, Let's just leave it at that. So it's traditional lead generation, demand generation, or revenue marketing. And so I've seen companies go through these stages, and everyone seems to understand those stages and can say, well, we're in this stage. But I've also seen marketers use this to talk about their careers. So they'll say, you know, I started out as a traditional marketer. Then I became a lead generation marketer. Now I'm a demand generation marketer. And how can I become a revenue marketer? So it's a it's a career progression as much as it much as it is a maturity level for marketing and B2B organizations. Do you hear that, listeners? <laughs> I think that's that's great. And it it shows I think it also um I help I think it helps a lot of marketers see where they can go. It does. They, absolutely. There's a future there. there. There's where you're going. And it's really quite exciting because the people that get on the towards the right side of the continuum have a lot more power and a lot more influence. And I would argue that's why at some companies you're starting to see more chief marketing officers making the leap straight to CEO. You are seeing that. And you also see these marketers making more money and being in very high demand. It's amazing. We're in 2018 and the shortage for skills in this area is absolutely growing larger. It's not getting smaller, Doug. Mm. And also, unfortunately, the only way you get these skills is to be working in a company that has decided to adopt these practices. There's really no other way that you can get it. 
Yes, you can take classes in digital marketing. You can take classes in HTML. You can take classes in how to do search. You can take classes in all of those things. Mm -hmm. But really, there's really no one good program at a university level. And if there is, you guys, please let me know. I'd love to hear about it. That really talks about, you know, how do you become a revenue marketer across strategy, people, process, technology, customer, and results. Mm -hmm. and that's really what this re, this is really what the book Rise of the Revenue Marketer is. It is a very simple playbook that is highlighted with 26 interviews from CMOs and VPs who have lived that journey and share their insights and their perspectives. So it's very powerful in, in helping you navigate through these stages and understanding what you have to put in place in one stage to get to the next stage. Yes, and you know, just for the listener's benefit who hasn't read the book, the, the different stages we just talked about are really at the very beginning of the book. A big section of the book walks you through, okay, great, so we got those four areas. Now, how the heck do you do it? <laughs> and that's where mm -hmm. you introduce the, 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 the uh, Pedowitz Group RM6 model, and that walks mm -hmm. you through. Uh, it's, it's really quite detailed where you go through you know, all the issues related to strategy and the people and the process. I'm going to read them here. Technology, content, and results. And I, I gather that you all have to spend a few days with each new client just walking them through that. And then uh, you, you walk uh, kind of like you know the, the five stages of, uh, what is it, death, where it's uh, anger, grief. anger, grief, denial. Yeah. yeah. So you've got the stages of revenue marketing change. So you say, okay, well, these are the things you need to address. And then here's, here's kind of how it happens. And uh, those are disruption, resistance, acceptance, adoption, and advocacy. And mm -hmm. what I wanted to ask you was talk about what is the disruption that tends to happen to make a company start to realize we have got to start moving in that direction? They are getting their ass handed to them in the market. Okay. That's absolutely positively where it starts. And let me tell you why that's important. So in 2013, of course, I wrote the book in 20, began writing in, in 2012, and then we published in 2014. But, you know, digital marketing was just kind of a marketing thing at that time. Mm -hmm. Digital transformation for the business is a core strategy for every company on the planet. So it has become bigger than marketing using email as the customer becomes more and more digital and as customers expect that wonderful B2C experience in every interaction that they have, digital transformation and having that a part of a core strategy is very important to every single company that's out there. Mm -hmm. And because we're looking at digital transformation as not a marketing initiative, but now a company initiative, Thank goodness. you have a lot more people paying attention to this. Mm -hmm. And so that's, if you, if you take a look at why companies do this, what, what is, why do they begin to want to take this journey? In the early days, Doug, we would see really smart marketers who saw the writing on the wall and would try to lead it. But honestly, without executive sponsorship, they could only get so far. Yep. It's, it's just those changes aren't going to happen. And we're talking about sweeping transformation here. We're not talking about bringing in a little bit of technology and doing a few things different. The biggest change, and this is actually one of the things that I'm studying in my research right now for my PhD, is like I was talking about the legacy thinking of salespeople thinking they own the entire 
sales process and the entire buyer journey when actually they don't. Marketing owns it now because they're the ones having that digital conversation. The perception of what marketing is and what marketing can be is still deeply mired in legacy thinking. Mm. If executive team cannot see that marketing is now a tool for revenue and growth, then they're missing a huge opportunity. And so we've seen, and even today, Doug, even today, latest research shows us only about a third of CMOs report financial measures. And my bet would be 50% of those that report that, the executive team finds it suspect. Mm. So, and we're in 2018 and we're drowning in technology, right? So it, the technology is not the issue. I think it has everything to do with legacy thinking about what marketing is and what marketing can be in an organization. Mm. So the biggest transformation for a revenue marketer is having the company see you as part of the revenue team and not the pins and mugs department. Yeah, I mean the the, the CEO really doesn't care about your your open rate or your you know your activity. They they're a little more interested in revenue. And um, so Debbie, it reminds me of a book uh, where I interviewed one of the authors last year, and it was called "The Twelve Powers of a Marketing Leader" by Thomas Barwise and Patrick. Thomas Barta and Patrick Barwise. And in it, they used a lot of McKinsey data to look at what uh, perceptions are of marketers, people who work for marketers, people who hire marketers, um, and uh, what uh, the successful ones are doing. And it's it's very tightly aligned with with what I've found in your book, uh, Debbie, because one of the big takeaways was to marketers, get in the revenue camp. It mm-hmm. could not have been clearer. And they went into mm-hmm. great detail explaining why if you're a marketer and you cannot talk about revenue, you are going to be considered a part of the arts and crafts, party planning, make it pretty department. Along the lines with that Fornay's group study from a few years yeah. back where it talked about only like 20% of CEOs trusted that marketers understood how the company made money. <laughs> yeah, Barwise, uh, I, I actually quote him multiple times in uh, some of my of the research that I'm doing for my PhD right now. And uh, there has been there is a ton of research in the academic world, academic studies that have been done that talk about the CMO who's related to revenue stays, the CMO who's not related to revenue leaves. It's as simple as that. Many, many, many studies talk about that. And so I have not read the 12 powers of a marketing leader, but you bet I'm going to go get that book. And <laughs> it's again, right up your alley. It, it is it, absolutely right. Up. But, but there is, there is a very tight. Um, so, but, but even with all this research that says CMO, part of the revenue, you stay CMO, no revenue, you go, but still only a third of CMOs report financial results. Mm. So I think 10 years from now, they can just play this same interview. <laughs> Maybe it'll I, be up to 50. I don't I know. Never, I never would have thought. You, you, I, when I really, you know, and I started my research a long time ago on this, I, I never, ever would have thought in 2018 we'd still be sitting at that number. And that's why I think my, my dissertation is so interesting because I'm trying to figure out why. What, what's, what's getting in the way? There's over 5,000 pieces of technology that marketing can use to play the revenue marketing game. So it's not the, it's not technology. 
So it has to be in some of these other areas. And I do think a lot of it has to do with the perception of marketing. I, I agree. And I can't wait to see what else you find there because, you know, I meet a lot of uh, people who are maybe in a company and they're a traditional marketer and they're, they're, they're some, a lot of my meet are pretty smart, pretty bright folks, but I think they are having to play the role that they're cast in by their company because the company doesn't understand what they could be doing for them. That is a sad story. It really is. And again, I, this, is, this is back on the CEO. You know, the CEO's job, the executive team's job is to create shareholder value. That is their job. And so you have to take a look at every tool you have and say, am I using it in the most optimized way to drive the most revenue and the most margin and the most value for my shareholders? And they are falling down on this fundamental fiduciary responsibility, period. On the other hand, I've seen CEOs of small startup companies, and uh, when they were going to market, you know, their growth, their entire growth was predicated upon what marketing could do. Marketing was the initial growth engine for the company. And a lot of that had to do with search and, um, you know, in, in that area. But it, it wasn't salespeople picking up the phone and smiling and dialing. You know, it was, let's have that conversation. Let's, let's go where those people are in the digital world. And let's get them involved with us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you've got, uh, you've got, again, you've got this legacy thinking. Part of it's ignorance. Part of it is arrogance. And part of it is just cluelessness. Mm. Well, is it hard, uh, given that you've seen this and it doesn't seem to be, it seems to be more static than you would like. Does it seem to Debbie Gagish like you're taking crazy pills? It does sometimes. It absolutely does. You know, and again, I, I made the statement coming into 2018, a third of CMOs reporting financial responsibility and everything, every tool that they need, maybe except for CEO support or perception, but it's right there in their hands. And what I love, what I love is we now have what I call serial marketers out there. And these are CMOs and VPs who have gone to different companies, like they've been to three companies, four companies, and they always come in and they bring in and they create that revenue marketing engine. One of my favorite people that talks about that, he's frequently a, a co-presenter with me at College of William & Mary, is my good friend Jim Kaner. And Jim is winding down his fifth company. Um, he's hired by uh, folks to come in and um, get the revenues restarted in companies. Every time he comes in and he brings in revenue marketing principles to help drive revenue. Mm. And every time he gets crazy results. And this is a VP of sales. This is a a CEO who is using revenue marketing principles to create shareholder value so they can have an exit event. Mm -hmm. And he's done it in five back-to-back companies. That's terrific. And I I should have mentioned that you're also, I guess, a visiting professor at uh, College of William Mary at their Mason School? That's right. Okay. Now, you mentioned Jim Kinnear, and there was one quote in in the book that I absolutely loved, and he described the old days, like we talked about at the beginning, where you had to go to the salesperson pretty early on versus now. And he said, in the old days, marketing just put content out there, and I like to compare it to bowling with a curtain across the pins. That's exactly right. That's exactly what it was. (laughs) That just jumped out. And now, as he describes it, because of marketing automation technology and the CRM and visibility into the marketing and the the sales uh, pipeline and so forth, 
it's like the curtain's been pulled back and you can see, okay, we, we hit the center one and we knocked all the other ones down. Oh, okay. We, we hit the one on the left. Okay. Now we, <laughs> I thought that was such a great analogy. I'm stealing it. Oh, he has wonderful analogies. And that's, and, and again, you can see from the book, which was published in 2013, I think I began doing business with Jim. Actually, I met Jim when I was the VP of marketing for the company where I bought Eloqua for the first time. And we shared a board member and our board member went to him and said, you got to go talk to that lady down in Atlanta because she's doing some incredible things to drive revenue through marketing. He flew down from Cincinnati. We spent half a day together and he walked away a changed man, completely got the whole idea of revenue marketing. And again, since then he's in five different companies, great exit values, driving revenue and producing results and shareholder value. Oh, that's terrific. Well, we don't have a whole lot of time left uh, to go into um, so many of the other models that you have in the book, but I wanted to ask one other thing. So revenue and marketing is one of my favorite topics. And another one is the alignment of sales and marketing. And in the book, you talk quite a bit about that. And in fact, you talk about why it's, you like the word synergy rather than alignment, but what are some of the things, talk about some of the things that marketers should be doing to help sales understand revenue marketing and some of the some of the questions they should be asking marketing and some of the things they should do. And I'll give you a hint. One of them's go on a sales call. You're so right. So um, one of my good friends and a pseudo revenue marketer, her name is Liz Sophia. And Liz, when she brings on, and she's been a CMO for multiple companies, and she's huge, re, huge into revenue marketing. So when she hires a marketer, the first six weeks that they're on board, they actually sit with the sales team. And they learn all about what sales does. They participate in sales calls. They listen to sales calls. They're actually on the sales team for the first six weeks that they're there, and they create a relationship, of course, right? Mm -hmm. Then when they come into marketing, Again, her, her whole marketing team runs with a quota. They've got a quota that they have to produce. And then they go on sales calls. They have the same sales training that, that salespeople have. And they create a very close working relationship. But the reason Liz can do that is because when she brings in net new people, there, there's no like bad history that's there. <laughs> no bad habits to break. And if a marketer can't speak the language of sales, and if marketing does not take on some kind of respons responsibility or accountability for quota, they will never, ever have the respect of the sales team. It just simply is not going to happen. And it's really incumbent upon the marketing team to make that first move. It's incumbent upon the marketing team to say, we've got to become, quote, unquote, sales experts. We've really got to understand that team, what they go through, how we can help them. I'll give you an example. How many marketing teams, when they begin this revenue marketing journey, rather than sitting in a team room by themselves just as marketers and thinking up campaigns, go to the sales team and say, where are you guys struggling? Is there a market or is there a product or do you have a salesperson that's struggling? Mm -hmm. so why, don't we, why don't we create campaigns to help them address what they have going on immediately so that we can all be successful together? Yeah. Are you trying to get net new customers? Are you trying to sell to the existing customers? <laughs> is there a new territory or is it, you know, I'll questions you, like that? I'll tell you a funny story. I was working with a large global company. And marketers were so frustrated because they'd been working so hard to get net new logos. And they were sending those leads over to mark to sales and sales was not following up on them. So I did a little bit of investigation in this company. The salespeople got the same commission 
whether they were doing a renewal, whether they were going after a net new piece of business. And they had plenty, plenty, plenty of renewal business to chase, which mm -hmm. was infinitely easier. So mm -hmm. you're a salesperson, you're sitting there, I'm going to make the main money, same money if I chase a renewal or if I chase net new business, where am I going to spend my time? So there was just a complete disconnect there. <clears throat> Only when the VP offered a spiff for going after net new logos were they incented to change their behavior. So just a simple example. Mm -hmm. So Debbie, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Revenue marketing is transformation. It's hard and it is required. And it is an incredible career opportunity. Oh, well said. Amen. I couldn't agree more. So let me ask you, what books, any books, have inspired your work and career? I got to tell you, for as far as you know, the marketing stuff goes, it was Steve Wood's Digital Body Language. Do you remember that book, Doug? No, I do not he, know about uh, it. And that's why he, I do this podcast. I get to learn so much. It was one of the very first books on this topic. And I was so mad that Steve came out with that book before I could get one out. But Steve Woods was one of the original founders of Eloqua. Oh, and he wrote, okay. a book, he wrote a book called Digital Body Language, which if you read it is really, you know, just like we can look at each other and understand body language. Mm -hmm. What marketers now have to do is interpret digital body language. And it was just, it was really an incredible book. And so that's one of the books that really, oh, wow. that, that really, really sounds interesting. Yeah. It's a great book. It's, it's a classic. It is a classic book. I'm going to look it up. Well, good. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or looking forward to reading? Well, I, there's two books. Uh, there's one that I think came out last year or the year before, but I like to reread it. It's by Scott Eblen, and it's called Overworked and Overwhelmed. And it's the mindfulness alternative because most marketers are high type A, and they just need a sense of reality. And the other good book that I've read recently is Three Value Conversations and How to Create, Elevate, and Capture Lifetime Customer Value. Because I think this focus on the customer is the number one thing that B2B marketers are falling down on. They talk about it, but most B2B marketers have never talked to a real customer. Everything they get is tribal knowledge that they get from sales. However, in the digital economy, in the engagement economy, B2B marketers have to understand and, in fact, have all the data to be the expert on who the customer is and what they want. And so this book by Peterson and, and Reister really kind of talks about that. And I think that's a great book. Oh, wow. These are, I, you know, I, honestly, I did not know these books, but they are right up my alley. Um, so I'm going to be checking those out. And we're actually going to include uh, links to them in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. So we'll put them there for the listeners so they can, they can find them. How best can listeners learn more about you and your book? Fantastic. You can go to pettowitzgroup.com to learn about me. You can email me, Debbie, at pettowitzgroup.com. The book's available on Amazon, but I'm also happy to provide free copies. I, you know, I didn't write the book to sell it. I wrote the book to share knowledge and really to try to democratize revenue marketing practices. Oh, good. Well, thank you very much. Um, just so you know, I did purchase your book, so don't spend it all in one place. Okay. Um, <laughs> So the name of the book is Rise of the Revenue Marketer. The author is Debbie Gagish. Debbie, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Doug, thank you for having me. 
And that closes the book on episode 159 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, I love doing it. I love hearing from the listeners. Please feel free to just message me on LinkedIn. And if we're not connected there, just send me an invite. My name again is Douglas Burdett. And do you know what a great conversation starter is? Ask your friends and colleagues what podcast they listen to. And if you think they might like the Marketing Book Podcast, please do me a favor and mention it. And please join us next time as we welcome David Ocker to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, Creating Signature Stories, Strategic Messaging that Energizes, Persuades, and Inspires. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.